0: Ladies, we have a question for you. What are you doing on Friday 15th of March to Sunday the 17th of March? I'm really hoping you can join Lorraine and I for a very special weekend getaway to rest, rejuvenate and re-energise at the beautiful Samaritz Hotel on the North Cornish coast. Yes, we are kicking
1: off our Postcards from Midlife Events programme for 2024 with this intimate and bespoke midlife retreat It's our first ever one, which Trish and I have put together with our friends at the luxury Cornish Hotel, St Moritz. One of my favourite places to stay when I'm home in Cornwall, thanks to the beautiful wild spa and gorgeous rooms and it's minutes from the beach. As well as cold water swimming experiences and friendship walks with us along the beautiful coast, you'll enjoy relaxing classes and sound bathing. You'll also be inspired by our workshops, including breathwork to calm the midlife nervous system and mindful
0: cooking with local chef Emily Scott. And you'll even take part in a special podcast recording with best-selling local author Kathy Rensenbrink talking about her book, How to Feel Better. Your stay includes all of this, as well as two nights accommodation, breakfast, lunches, and a two-course evening dinner too. To find out more and book your place, just go to samaritzhotel.co.uk forward slash offers and breaks. We really hope to see you there in March.
2: That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code super24.
0: Time for a commercial break with RamDocs Health. Chris, you know we've been talking
1: about taking on new challenges here recently. I have come up with a brilliant idea for one.
0: Uh, Does it involve swimming, as usual?
1: No, this time it involves spandex. Oh. I have decided I'm going to get super fit and healthy and pitch Gladiators, the midlife version, uh-huh. to telly bosses. Yes. They brought back the 1990s show,
0: which our generation loved, but it's for young contestants, and I fancy giving a go at 55. Another one of your mad schemes, <laughs> uh, Gladiators, that is not the getting fit and healthy idea. That is something we're actually both doing right now anyway, and it's very much to be advised in midlife, isn't it? Exactly. And if I'm going to get into my Gladiator training or
1: any other kind of training for that matter, I think I'm going to have to double down on those regular female health checks, which brings me to Randox Health. They provide a range of comprehensive health checks for women at every life stage, designed to empower women with knowledge so they can take control of their health and make simple lifestyle changes that could prevent future
0: illness. Well, that is a much more sensible idea than becoming a gladiator. <laughs> We've actually mentioned Randox Health before because their blood tests cover specific concerns including menopause, fertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, even ovarian reserve, breast and ovarian cancer risk and much more as well. They also provide personalised health insights to help optimise your health and catch any potential issues early with their Every Woman Full Body MOT, measuring up to 150 biomarkers in your blood relating to heart, thyroid kidney liver hormone nutritional and gut health and their repeat testing after six months helps you to track improvements and identify further areas you might need help with now if you listeners want to embark
3: on
1: your own health journey today then visit randoxhealth.com we have a discount code for our listeners it's postcards 24 and gives you 10 percent off
0: on their website randoxhealth.com let's get you all checked out before slipping into any spandex Well, I've had a bit of swimming pool rage, which I think you will will relate to, you will understand. Angry Mermaid. My Angry Mermaid moment. So there I am in the swimming pool. First of all, my rage at um, the fact that the swimming pool have decided in their great wisdom to turn three lanes into four lanes, and now you can't actually get by somebody without being bashed in the head by a big man or whatever. So very cross, virgin, active. Wandsworth doesn't make any sense. Cross already when you before you've even put a little toe in the water. Exactly. And then when I did put a toe in the water the other day, you, you know, you go if there's a, an empty lane, you go in that lane, right? Because it's brilliant. You get your own lane. There are was swimming up and down, swimming up and down, and then the lane next to me becomes empty, and a man comes along, gets in my lane, even though there's an empty lane next to us. <laughs> And I point it from the other end. I point at the empty lane and I'm, you know, jumping up and down, waving, pointing. And he doesn't care. He just takes off swimming. So I have to move into the lane. And guess what the lane was? Fast lane. It was the slow lane. It was the slow lane that was empty and oh, he didn't want to I be see. in it. And I was swimming faster than him. So there we go. What say you to that? I say to this, because obviously I am a
1: veteran of lane etiquette and I've been in the threads all over the Facebook groups. I mean, I don't like to generalise, but the men don't like it. They won't go in the slow lane. So this week I was at the beautiful Marshall Street swimming pool, which is a Mm. 1920s pool in Carnaby Street. It's gorgeous, 30 metres in the middle of the day. Not many people there. Obviously, I don't go in the fast lane because there's a man in it. So what's the point? He will knock me out of the way. So um, I'm a fast lane swimmer. So I'm swimming up and down. And then I notice a lady in, I would say, uh, quite a bit older than me in maybe her late 60s, early 70s, really big, powerful, clearly a swimming expert. She's got, you know, something club on her head, gets into the fast lane and is significantly faster than the man in the fast lane. And he tries to race her. I mean, we did watch this, my friend and I, from the other lane. And they get to the bottom. She waits for him to catch up because she is significantly faster. And she says, you can't swim in this lane because I am a much faster
0: swimmer than you. Uh (laughs) Brilliant. Did he move, Trish? No, of course he didn't. (laughs) Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy and I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hot house, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife,
1: from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances.
0: Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier healthier and more harmonious second act. Da da da, da 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 name that tune Lorraine I know it's your tuneless caterwauling catawalling it's strictly yeah. come dancing
1: I'm not one of the contestants yet it's my big dream <laughs> Trish you know it. it's my I big dream my big dream I'm not there and I haven't even turned it down. I just haven't been asked. So, you know, <laughs> carry on <laughs> podcasting. That's what I say. What's going
0: on in your little mind to tell me with all of that strictly intro? Well, I think like many people, I'm already obsessed since the show started a couple of weeks ago. I have to say, it's amazing how a bit of twinkle and a tango can make that end of summer, back to school, emptiness situation situation um, disappear, really. And even though it's a long way to Christmas, I'm already on the hunt for a bit of Lovely lurex, a bit of sparkle, but not sequins. We're not allowed to wear sequins, are we? Not very sustainable, bad for the environment. Uh, Strictly is absolutely fabulous. My gorgeous Jojo, my favourite
1: dancer, is on with Annabelle Croft. Oh, Johannes. Yes. Love him. It's glitz and it's glamour. And actually, our guest today is glitz and glamour as well and very sparkly. In fact, I think she wore something sparkly, changed into it last time we had her on the show. It's the one and only
0: Trini Woodold. Oh. She was zooming from her bedroom. We were in lockdown. She just stripped off to a bra, tried on all sorts of different clothes in front of us to show us how to get a bit of bright and sparkle into our daily lives, didn't she? Yes, yeah, Trini's full of
1: energy and enthusiasm. And we've been uh, channeling some of her joyful advice from her brand new book, Fearless, uh, which she's going to talk about shortly. It's all about finding confidence and energy. Uh, and it's also kind of, I would say, it's the ultimate midlife beauty and fashion Bible, isn't it?
0: Yeah, super helpful. Midlife does have a bit of a habit of uh, throwing few curveballs our way. Our bodies, they just start doing unexpected things, don't they? It's like, it's a knockout with body changes, isn't it? Oh my goodness, body changes, joint changes, things growing in places they shouldn't be. And I've told you this before, my delightful little warty type growth just appeared on my forehead. Very upset about it, of all the places. On my forehead. It's barely noticeable. Well, mm, Well, got quite a lot of makeup on top of it. I am going to the doctor, having it checked out, being very sensible. Yes, please go and check it out.
1: Because I do love you anyway, Trish, warts and all. (laughs) See what I did there? Uh, Uh, We're not uh, uh, the only people with unexpected lumps and bumps, though, because there's been a bit of bunion chat, I notice on the (laughs) Facebook group. These are words I never thought I would say as part of my day job. Um, But we are the podcast that goes where other podcasts don't go. So I'm going to share this from Lorna, who says, Has anyone beaten bunions into submission? Any exercises that work to bring mobility back into your big toes? I think horrible feet ran in my family. Well, that's a bit sad, isn't it? (laughs) I remember my granny's twisted toes, just awful, and they must have been so painful. Poor Lorna. Poor Lorna's granny. Now, I do refer you back to Petra Fisher, who has a footwork programme. She's a movement expert who we had on the show. So listen to her on the show. And her online courses are really good because I've got arthritis in my feet and I found them very helpful. Might be a bit late for Lorna, but she did get lots of words of wisdom from our lovely group members. And I learned a new word myself when I read the thread. Uh bunyan ectomy. I'm never going to say that word again, Trish, but what do you think it is?
0: Well, I I think this is maybe quite obvious. I'm guessing it's the operation to remove that sort of bulging, bony toe infringement. Um, So yes, good luck, Lorna, if you, I'm going to say it now, if you do end up having to have a bunionectomy. Lots of positive comments about the old bunionectomy. People saying they're quite life-changing. Wouldn't put it on your CV though, would you? No, not really. No. But um, there's also been chat about um, declining eyesight. Sarah says, how do people manage with worsening eyesight and makeup, especially going into the darker morning months? Seems trivial, but I find it really frustrating. I'm not in a position to use contact lenses. I'm using my very first pair of very fair calls. Recommendations for mirrors or techniques, please. And uh, yes, lots of good mirror suggestions. Illuminated... Ten times magnifying mirrors from brands like Simple Human and Ilios, I think, and Amazon of course have loads too. Meta though went for a Waltz and all reply. She confessed, I feel you, Lorna. My daughter is constantly commenting on my bad blending and chin hairs. Daughters are so cruel, aren't they? <laughs>
1: Listen, girls, it's coming your way. You may mock, yeah. but you just wait. The chin hairs. Actually, I'm going to be talking about women and aging. At the Cheltenham Literary Festival, Trish. <laughs> Get you, get me. I am going to be chairing a panel at Cheltenham on October the 9th at 6pm Yes, with Victoria Smith, who is the author of Hags, the Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, and Susanna Wise, who's an actor and writer, she was in EastEnders, whose novel is about a confused middle-aged woman. And I'm chairing a panel, Trish, called The Age Rage. <laughs> yes, more rage, more rage. About why society seems incapable of dealing with our growing voices as we mature. Obviously, I'm going to be taking Militant, my angry feminist, rampant Gen X alter ego with me. Um, Tickets are on the Cheltenham website. I think it's only £13. Do come along and heckle. Bring some men as well. Anyway, thank goodness we have Trini coming on shortly because she's going to diffuse the age rage and uh, up the glamour ante. I should be looking like J-Lo at the end of the Trini (laughs) interview. I will. And after we speak to Trini, we have another guest on the show. It's the first time uh, we've had two guests on the show. And we don't usually do two interviews an episode. But for this week's How to Win at Midlife, we thought it was really important to hear directly from an expert rather than Trish and I talking to an expert and then referencing what we've learnt um, in our How to Win slot, as we usually do.
0: Yeah, because we usually do that interview off air, don't we? But we're going to be joined by Stella O'Malley who is a therapist and founder of Genspect, an international alliance of professionals, trans people, detransitioners and parent groups, who has co-authored a new book called When Kids Say They're Trans, A Thoughtful Guide for Parents. Yes, we've had quite a few questions about this from parents
1: on our Facebook group. So we really thought we should get an expert in to answer on our behalf. So we got the language and everything right. Stella's going to be answering questions and offering support and advice for any parent or family member trying to support a loved one through gender change or gender distress.
0: Yes, and it's a a complex issue, and I think whether it affects you directly or not, it's really useful for all of us, really, to have a better understanding. So do listen on for that part of the show. In the meantime, shall we see what Trini has up her sexy sleeves for us?
1: I think we'll see more of Trini than her sexy sleeves, Trish. Makeup guru, CEO, best-selling author, TV presenter, social media sensation, style advisor, female founder, makeover master, beauty entrepreneur, columnist, and digital pioneer. She did start an e-commerce business in the 90s, way ahead of the curve. There are so many ways to describe our next guest, but perhaps the best adjective for this pioneering 59-year-old who has become a cult hero to so many midlife women is fearless. Sarah Jane Woodall is back for her second appearance on Postcards from Midlife. Obviously, we all know her better as Trini, founder of the global makeup and skincare brand, Trini London. I expect many of you listening are already part of the Trini tribe on social media. Trini's here today to talk about her new book, Fearless, a no-nonsense, advice-filled guide to all aspects of a woman's life, from how to apply makeup to a hooded eye, to which herbs help rosacea, via how to craft a personal friendship wheel and unlock your sexual energy. Fearless is part masterclass in finding and keeping your confidence, but also part memoir, tracing moments of Trini's extraordinary life and what a life it is. The youngest of six, she was sent to boarding school at just six years old, went into rehab for cocaine addiction twice before coming sober at 26. She underwent more than 10 rounds of IVF before falling pregnant with her daughter Lila, now 19, whom she has largely parented as a single mum. She's been both a failure and a success in business and has encountered sexism and ageism at work. Today, she is CEO of one of Europe's fastest-growing beauty brands with more than 4 million followers across all her platforms, employing 200 people. She's leading a single, happy, vibrant life and says all her experiences, good and bad, have been harnessed on her journey to becoming fearless. Today, Trini will share what she's learned over the decades, so we can enjoy our own magnificent midlife even more. Trini, welcome back to the hot seat on Postcards from Midlife.
2: Hello, how are we? How are we all today? Very
1: good today. Now, I'm going to start because you are the author of several books. They've they've sold over three million copies worldwide. You've been on Sunday Times, New York Times bestsellers lists. But Fearless, your new book, tell us why you decided to write that now.
2: Good point, because at some stages, um, it was very, uh, I was like the elastic band where I was thinking, was I going to be pulled too much? But I have a lot of people who hear something I might say across social They'll DM and i say, where can I find it? Where can I find it? And I get that a lot. And then I'm trying to send them to a place where they can find it. And then we put lots of videos on YouTube. And I don't always remember where, where, where they've been posted. And I think from the books I did before, I've learned a lot. Those books are very much defined by rules. And I feel my conversation with women now is about suggestion. It's gone from rules to suggestion. Right, a guide. Think about this, you know, and giving you some inspiration, hopefully. So I then thought, shall I put it all in one place? Because people saying, could you just put it all in one place? Could you do a book? And I kept having things and thinking, I'll never have time for a book. And then some publishers, at the same time in those months, approached me and said, will you do a book? And then I was thinking, can I do a book without Susanna? Because we were so like, you know, like sardines in a tin. And when you have a writing partner, like when you're a podcast team, you know, you you play off each other. You brainstorm together the ideas when one is feeling with loud energy, the other one is up and vice versa. I think in the way Susanna and I used to write as well is I would do that skeleton. I'm very good at bullet points and she's beautiful flowing language. So I thought I I won't have beautiful flowing language. You know, that was Susanna. And I think when you then stop working together, you have to fill out that bit that you've let the other person take care of because you felt they were better than you at it. And so, like, you know, I learned to have a sense of humor. I never felt I had a sense of humor. I then thought, OK, let me see if I can do this. So I, I spent a weekend where I just started dictating into my voice notes. And then I got somebody to write it down. And then I read it and I thought, actually, I can write when I speak. When I was writing it, I kept thinking, I don't know if I have enough here or I'm just touching on a subject. And And then at the end, when I was looking at the galleys and the edit and I was going through with my editor and... I kept saying, should we put a bit more in here? And she said, Trini, you no, know, there's a lot. It's going to be a very happy book. And I did think all the time, have I said enough on this subject? So, and I think you always think. You haven't put enough in, I don't
0: know. I think you have. It's very helpful. But you you are woman with so much advice and so much experience. And um, we've only got about 40 minutes with you. So where do we begin? We, <laughs> we decided rather than do your personal story, because we have talked to you about that before, and you've been out and about talking about that recently, we're going to get quite practical. Um, and we've asked our lovely middle-life ladies in our Facebook community what they want to hear from you. So firstly, we're going to ask you, about success and how you feel about success and specifically about any advice that you were given, maybe in your 40s or 50s, about
2: success and what it means to you. Oh, that's a big one. I don't know where to start. Let me just start in the middle of my first thought, which is behind me, I'm not going to show you these. I got post-it notes and I did this during COVID of writing down in a way, what success looks like. I did the revenue of Trinity London and I did it per month and I had post-it notes. You know, we were doing a lot of weird things in COVID when we worked from home, but this I put up because I thought I need a visual.
1: I just played table tennis on the kitchen table. I didn't put any post-its. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, that's like... <laughs> that's a brilliant idea though. So
1: so the post-it notes have got all of your... That's your
2: business plan. So They had that, but I then took them down the end of COVID and stuff and I didn't think about it. And last, this weekend, because... We can be scared of vocalizing what success looks like to us because in England, we can be scared that it might feel boastful or we want this or, you know, if it is at all materialistic. And I believe success is a mixture of ultimate internal happiness and what are you giving and receiving in the world, as well as I'd like to own my own home and things like that. So on this wall behind, I've got a mixture of those things of what success looks like. So it's really weird you asked me because I did this on Sunday. And on it are where I want the business to be. And then Lila at university, what does success look like there? Is she happy, settled? Has she made friends? Is she feeling, you know, she's had lots of anxiety, Lila. So I wanted to just put what success looks like for Lila being at university. It's not actually getting her first. It's more her, it's actually entirely her emotional state of mind. Um, I don't care what degree she gets. So success for me is a mixture of all those things. And, you know, I walked past the house I would love to buy one day. And so I went in front of this house that I've loved for many years. And I looked inside in 1999 when I no way could afford it. And I still now no way can afford it. But I, there's something very, it's like a, a house in London, which feels like a house in the country. And it's got this very big garden. And I just feel, I never want to live in the countryside, but that to me is, so I'm I'm going to get, I'm printing out that picture. I'm going to put that up there.
0: And you do some manifesting yeah.
2: about the house. Yes. Now, now, this is a word I didn't want to bloody well use. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so many people on social media yeah. doing, and you're going to manifest your dreams and your mouth. Oh my God. And I'm like, but there is something about having a sense of belief in your ability to do something. And, you know, many women find easier to sort of put themselves down and be self-deprecating than actually saying, I can do this, and therefore what's success look like if I want to put that out there. And it's it's a mixture of all those things. So don't put a glass ceiling on what you deem success might be. Just don't. Now. Practical
0: question for you, Trini. So, this may or may not be from someone in the group, or it may be from one of us, maybe Lorraine, in fact. <laughs> You're very tall. We're five foot two. We're quite lucky that we've always been naturally slim, but the midlife middle was an easier thing for us. How do we dress that? And have you ever had one? And how would you get rid of it?
2: I don't know how controversial I'm about to be here. I think there's an acceptance of you just get a midlife middle, and I don't accept that because I do believe there's solutions and it's about what we're prepared to do or give up in order to. So there's always that balance in life. You know, you want to have some drinks, so you're going to have this or you want to do this, so you're going to have that. And there's a balance in everyone's sense of what is a, a good full life is different. So I'm not going to judge that. I will talk for myself. I know that we process sugar really badly when we hit menopause and when we're peri- perimenopausal. So therefore, a lot of that midlife element that women say, what happened to my waist or my tummy, or I'm always bloated, a very high proportion of it, just having spoken to lots of different experts is about how we process sugar and it changes. So I made a decision about two years ago to really try and cut out 70% of the sugar I was eating. And I I read the glucose revolution and I followed the glucose goddess on Instagram. And it taught me a lot of that order in which I eat my food and how much I have sugar in my life. And I know also tiredness, you know, I've got a full day and I can't afford in the afternoon to feel tired. So I try and keep this very stable glucose. And that I think has a big effect on the tummy. The other thing is your hormone effect and how many women have different levels. So when you, you're you going into perimenopause, for example, you will, you know, get readings, everyone's could be different. When I was 43, my readings of Eastern progesterone and testosterone was zero, literally all of them, because I'd done a lot of IVF and everyone is different. Some people could be 55 and have amazing hormone readings. So I think if you think this really bugs me, I want to do something about it. I would say, get those hormone levels checked, see what levels you might think about going on. It's never too early to take hormones too. Hormone supplementation, people think they take it when they reach menopause. Some people take it earlier and it really helps them. And look at the sugar you take.
1: That's very helpful. Now, there are 153 pages of uh, style advice in your book. (laughs) It's
2: really useful.
1: Pictures, everything, absolutely amazing. So, one of our ladies then, I'm just going to pick because we had quite a lot of questions about this on dressing and getting out of a style rut. If you're pear-shaped, I hate that phrase, but if you're pear-shaped, how do you dress it? How do you dress your arms if you you aren't thinking that your arms are flattering? Uh, We're not saying it people are not looking great with that. But how do we dress ourselves? Are there are there a few kind of common specifics that help women whose bodies are changing as they age?
2: And let's talk about arms because everyone probably has a relationship with their arms. And some women will feel unbelievably comfortable and have body confidence that they will be 90 and they'll be sleeveless. And what to another one when she might feel should be hidden away, that one feels confident and does it. So I think that. I'm not going to address that because I love ultimate body confidence where it doesn't matter. And I think that's an amazing place. Not everyone gets there. And some women do feel, I've got got a bat wing. I've got some saggy skin. I've got mottling. My arms aren't what they used to be. But covering everything as well isn't practical in summer and different months. And sometimes we can cover too much and therefore we lose our silhouette. So I think there's little tips and tricks like I recently have invested heavily in what I call net shimmer tops. And they're like this sort of net. I'm going to show you one. I mean, we won't be able to show the listener, but if I show you, maybe Lorraine, you can describe it.
1: I'll describe it. I'm excited by this now.
2: So this is one from Topshop, I think. Oh,
1: gorgeous. So so sort of see-through netting
2: with a little bit of a pattern, different colours. Like some crystals on it. You know, I've, I've, I've got them in every tone, basically. But I put them, you know, on my arms, What's the underwear situation with them then? Because I'll put a tank top on top. So it's finding pieces that are just this underlay. So if you wear a sleeveless top, you have that coming out underneath. And this is for women who find it hot because you're getting aeration with the netting. So you don't get hot in them. That's what I love. But they hold at your arms together. If you've got sort of skin that you feel is a little bit out of control, it gives some, it's like spanks for your arm. So I sort of love it as a solution for women who feel, oh, I, I don't like to show my arms off. And going back to that pear shape thing, and I did, you know, in our book we mentioned pear shape. And I think pear shape is, you know, these body shape rules that we were so stringent about. It's just about proportionality. If you look at your your torso and you feel that your shoulders are much narrower than your hips, then clothes won't hang the same than if you make your shoulders broader. So I do love a shoulder. I have a shoulder pad in everything. I mean, I put it under. And it's a little net top like this that I get made. And I get Zara t-shirts with shoulder pads in them. And I wear them under blazers that have no you know, sleeve structure. Because I do feel when we get to midlife and beyond, that our posture and the structure and the way that we can be like a yeah. coat hanger, I'm now doing a pose of somebody who hasn't got the best posture, can affect clothes. So if I always have, coat hang shoulders even if I don't have coat hang shoulders things will hang better on anyone they're quite small aren't they yours they're little tiny shoulder pads They're tiny but they go straight across and they cut down on the sleeve so that's that's something that I think makes you this is about ageless dressing right that's how I like to find it then the other one is necklines I think we can do at different ages and different neck lengths and different size of boobs. We prefer different necklines. So Susanna's phenomenal in a sweetheart. I look like empty raisins still, so I wouldn't do a sweetheart. So you know. But I also know that color, as we go down the path of life, color is really important to frame our face, whether we choose to wear black or white monotones or, or lots of color. So the closer it is, the better. And if you still wear a deep V, maybe it shouldn't be so open at your neckline because we just change shape a bit. We can get slightly this shoulder at the back. I'm referring to the beginning from your neck going to the back of your back. And so just having the colour right tight against the side of your neck is fantastic. You can go deep feet, you can go open at the front, but it's when it's really open here. That gap from
1: the neck halfway across the shoulders, close that up, you're saying, aren't you?
2: I, I do that so often. To women and it just puts our face in frame as long as our face gets softer our jaw isn't so defined so having this definition around our neck puts us back in the room
0: and we should talk about beauty next really and your advice for that because I mean what you don't know about beauty makeup skincare I mean that the success of your business is phenomenal you're a genius at makeup and you've transformed so many women's lives. What do you say? What are the three most common things that come up, do you think, that you work as a brand to try to resolve for women?
2: How we have a relationship with foundational base, with all the women that I talk to, they, they can fall into one of these three categories. Either you've spent quite a few years making the base the color you want your skin to be, so you'll always see the base on your skin. And it's about using other things to give yourself the life back into your face, but If you do that, and especially as you get to midlife, you'll have a few little lines. And so you'll see more that it's not quite the right color for you. And so it's about really getting yourself matched. So it is. And then you can do blusher or bronzer, but that's one thing I'd say. The other one is that we can wear a lot of makeup base because we had bad skin when we were younger, but we keep doing it and we keep wearing quite a heavy base. And I think you shouldn't wear such a heavy base as you as you get older. I just feel it's it sits in your pores and the texture of it is really important. So looking at what the texture is and the finish is. And the other is about glow. And glow is something that's so about what decade you learned to do your makeup in. I think if you learned to do your makeup in the 80s, 90s, it was about a matte finish. And then as we get to the noughties, we start to see glow in skin. and And now it's so much glow, people are electric light bulbs. So where are you in that sort of matte to glow? And what's the best thing for your skin to look great, to look like even you're not wearing foundation, you've just got evenness of skin tone, but there's a glow. So I I love to think cheeks should be glowing, but to kind of get in the complicated arena of the nose glow and the cupid spoke glow and everywhere else glows is, is a little bit complicated for some people. So just when you're doing your base, check that you're not either making yourself so matte that it makes you look perhaps a little tired or slightly kind of dead to the world it's an extreme version of it and if you're you know you have a glow that the glow isn't all over your face but just in areas where it's going to make your skin look amazing so the balance of matte to glow uh, is the third one
1: can i ask about hooded eyes because that comes up on the face and hooded eyes and also
2: just keeping eye makeup in place on your eyes as you get older because it doesn't seem to work does it I think our skin changes. You can do primers on your eyes and then put something on top. Powders can get in the creases. I prefer cream base. I always feel the trick with hooded eyes is to look at your eyes the way you look at your boobs. Because a lot of women have one boob bigger than the other. And the trick with that, as many of you probably do, is you pull up and you make that strap shorter for the bigger boob. And it puts them back in play. And with our face, we sometimes sleep predominantly on one side. And that will be a more hooded eye. Right when you look at yourself in the mirror see is one a little bit more hooded and then push uh the deeper tone of color into your brow bone on mainly the outside area of your eye And then where your eyes are a bit more hooded, you push it a little bit more over the brow bone and it will sort of equalise.
1: So this is a question from a listener, uh, pertinent to you. I think it'd be very helpful with this. The the, uh, listener wrote, I am in midlife and I find alcohol, wine especially, doesn't agree with me anymore. And I would like to go sober. I've been reading about it a lot, but I've been a party girl in the past. So everything I go to with friends, events, holidays, dinners involves wine or alcohol. How do I navigate it? And can I still have a good time? You've been sober 26 years, so you know the answer to this one.
2: I mean, alcohol was never my thing. Drugs were. I've been clean 26 years. And I have friends who switch from wine to tequila or something, you know, but it's just I think there's a difference in the process of making the alcohol and how it is in your tummy. So there's a big difference between wine doesn't agree with me. I do find that there are actually a lot of women where The effect of wine changes and depression. I have some friends who there's a flatness and there's a slight depression and there's a kind of change in how they talk about how their life is. And I might notice how much they rely just on a little bit. But every day there's something going on. And I do feel that your body has changed. So how you react with wine, you can read up on it. That does happen. The mental one of the idea of getting sober is different because you've got to, you know, when I um gave up drugs, I, you know, I'd hit a rock bottom. And I think with drugs, it's easier to know that rock bottom, you know, when I was using you don't do drugs in public. You know what I mean? It's not it wasn't socially acceptable. Now there's many various of socially acceptable drug taking, but in my time there wasn't. So so you kind of quicker come to a sense of a rock bottom. I think when you drink, it's much harder to think what's the what's the emotional effect this is having on me. Because if that is strong enough, it will be easier to make a decision to give up because you're getting to a stage where you're just not feeling happy. And there's a few things that when I have somebody who might come and say to me, I just don't know if I'm drinking too much, heavy drink, alcoholic, I don't know how to frame this in what's my What's the line? Yeah. What's, what is the line? And, and I think the line is different for people, but I think it boils down to that. Can you consistently predict how you're going to behave with alcohol? If you know tonight I'm going to go and have two drinks and you have two, or tonight I'm going to go crazy and you do, that's great. But if you have an intention of things and you keep not being able to stick to that intention, then it has control over you. You don't have control over it. I think it's worth talking to somebody and just gauging where you feel you're at. And you know when you're listening to this how much you're feeling. I'm not feeling great about myself anymore. I don't have the energy. I don't have that passion for life. And then it might be that you do actually need to look at having a program of recovery. And it's not just about giving up alcohol. Because We generally use or drink to fill a hole, you know, that we're not filling in our life. And, you know, recovery is about filling that hole without drugs or alcohol. I
1: think a lot of women in midlife are just giving up because you feel so much better.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think there are definitely that. Or people who just say for six months, I'm just not going to drink much and see how my life is going to be different and see, do I have the energy in the morning? Am I feeling better about stuff? And it's going back to the tummy thing, but it's also going back to that sense of Retrospectively, when you look back, how much did you have a good time on that drink, or how much did actually the downside of that drink was worse than the upside? And then it's like, well, I'd rather be consistently feeling better.
0: I think it's the wine. It's all about the wine. Forget the wine. Yeah, one gin tonic. That's then. That's like you know the equivalent for me of a bottle of wine, and it's so much better. But listen, fearless. And you're not just talking about style and beauty in the book, you're talking about other areas of life. And one of those areas that midlife women can often find themselves is coming out of a relationship, a long-term relationship in midlife, and their confidence isn't there about trying to date again. What advice do you have around that?
2: I mean, I'm new to this in that regard too, because I've come out of a long relationship and I came out of a long relationship in March and I'm not dating right now. I do think it's really important. When you end a relationship, to spend a bit of time finding out who you are, you know, because in any relationship of any kind, it's with two people, you lose an element of yourself by being with somebody and it's finding out what's the whole of me. It's like when I end my relationship with Susanna, it's weirdly not different, you know, what's that whole of me and what do I actually enjoy as opposed to what have I compromised my life and pretended I enjoyed or what have I just given up that I forgot I really love doing. And you need to spend that time, I think, with yourself to think, what do you actually enjoy in your life? It's um, said, and when I read it, I think that's so trite, but it's true. It's like somebody should add something to your life that's an extra lovely thing. If they make you feel a 100%, they make you whole. Is that the right relationship to have? Should you try and make yourself feel as whole as you can? And then that's the wonderful extra thing. And I think that to me is the epitome of a relationship. When you've been in a relationship for a long time, There's definitely those people together, and we all have friends in those relationships where they're whole, you know, separate. They wouldn't be the people they are. It's together in that 20, 30-year relationship, and those are the ones that are lasting where it makes that, you know, and they're bereft if something happens to either of them. I do this thing in the book about friends, and, you know, who are the friends you want in your life? You might see more of them now because you're not with somebody. So who do you want in your life who brings stuff into your life? Who do you want to give stuff to their life to? You know, those people you might bring back into your life. And then you work out a bit more who you are. And then you think, well, what actually would I like? But I think if we rush, we don't have that time to figure ourselves out a bit. So I think it's always a good opportunity for that reflection to figure yourself out a bit more.
1: There's a biggie question here, work-life balance, which I think Probably any woman over 40 has been asked a thousand times, particularly Gen X women. Uh, you've spoken about your daughter, Lila, and the amazing nanny you've had in your life um, because you've been a single parent for quite a lot of your parenting. What is the crux of a good work-life balance? I mean, if you've got any particular advice for single
2: mums, that would be great. When I had uh, Jenny came to our life, Jenny is like my my uh, Lila's grandmother, actually. So it's just not I had a nanny. She's much more than that. And my mother had Alzheimer's, so wasn't a present grandmother for my mum much. And and Jenny, I'm going to say this thing. I think we can be very feminine, very masculine, or we can be a bit in between as parents. And when you're a single parent, you have a bit more or less of one or the other. So like with my stepson, Zach, I would go when his dad wasn't well. I'd go to the school when he might have had a problem with his mom. And I'd be the dad and she'd be the mom. You know, so I contributed that to the relationship. So there was two grown ups in his life who could help guide him. And with Jenny, Jenny is the coziest element of the mum that I'm like, always knows the food. Like Lila would test you on what food did I like in 2007? I don't remember. And she'll go, but Jenny will remember. Of course, Jenny will remember, you know, because I was probably filming abroad and coming back at the weekend. So when I look back and Lila is now, and I just, I'm going to say this now to help women who are really struggling with the work life balance. And maybe it takes you away from, your younger children. I think from my experience, there are times your kids really need you. And there are times when your kids just need a really good life around them. But having you to guide is lessened. So when Lila's a little squidgy baby, she needs to feel love and support and security. I was, you know, I went to America and I worked in America for a bit. And Lila was three months old and she just needed to feel, you know, I was still breastfeeding. So I breastfed. I was on this TV set, you know, and, you know, come and, get breastfed. It was like, it was really like, does she remember any of that? No, of course she doesn't. All she remembers is she was fed well and she wasn't a starving baby and she was loved and there was cuddles. When Lila first went to school, I was made sure that when I was working, I wasn't away. But then once she was in school, I did miss a few sports days and Lila will look back at pictures and go, that was the year you weren't there. And I'll go, yeah, but that was the year we also got a new house, Lila, which you loved. So there'll be those moments when Your kid will guilt trip you because they just that's in their nature and they know so well how to do it and get to your tough spot. And it's for you to objectively think, am I enough of a mum right now or am I not, you know, engage that? And every child is different. But I have had guilt over the years when Lila's father was alive, but not that well. And I had to travel to work and it was the only job I knew. I could have said, I'll give that up and get a job in a nine to five somewhere. But I didn't actually think anyone would employ me. I didn't feel, because I hadn't had an employable job for years. So I look at her now and she had a very tough time when she went to her gap year. She got really bad anxiety and that was probably the death of her dad coming up. And a lot of friends of mine who have lost children, children have lost their parents, one or the other, when they have that period of time when they're first fully away from family for a year, a lot of those kids, it comes up. She's now at university and she's doing brilliantly. So I look at her and I think, yeah, I did a good job. And I can actually say that now. I I spent 20 years questioning it, but I look and we always do a better job, I think, than we think we do, because we're always pressurized by, you know, we're here, but we should be there. And sometimes you just got to actually think, I need to be here right now. So it's okay. And I think we are the hardest on ourselves. We're much harder on ourselves than anyone else. It depends also what your work is, because work-life balance is not just for people who have kids. It's for people who work a lot and then how much time do they spend? you know, being with their friends and, and having a home life, because this is not just a child thing. It depends on your work. So I think it's about, are you in a job that you love, that it's sort of nearly more than work? And are you getting something from it, which isn't just work? Like in my work, I have definitely my work bit, running the business, having tech meetings, doing the PL. that's work. That's like, has to be done. I don't rush in there loving a PL, all right? But work is also meeting lots of people, traveling around the world and getting to know women and understanding more about women every time I go and it's like I meet fantastic women or I I meet women having a really tough time and you know think how can we help that kind of woman in that situation so it's much more than work for me you know it's really an enjoyable thing that I love doing it's a passion so how, how can your passion also be a bit of work is something I would throw in there too.
0: And just finally on coping strategies, because you we know you practice meditation, gratitude journal, you talk about all of those things. For anyone who hasn't got to a place of finding a coping strategy and feeling that midlife overwhelm, what would your one final piece of advice be?
2: I think it's about those things you've mentioned, because... I think when we feel that, we feel that most when we're not living in the present, we're living in the past or future because we're doing comparatives. We're putting ourselves down. We're thinking what we haven't done yet. You know, it makes you just feel worse about yourself. It's about how can you not do that to yourself? So the more you live in that moment you are experiencing, the better you will feel. And I know that so fucking well from years of experience, which is why it took me, you know, I was like a, dragging a horse to water but I did think I have to because to me meditation was something which was looking at a candle closing your eyes and I was like and now I I love it I do get up every morning before I get up I do the calm app, which is the most simple one and I just listen it's like fake it to make it you might listen and your mind might go off and you just think okay let's look at that but I'm here and I always have a better day when I do it I cannot tell you how that 10 minutes affects me but I do and then when I have more time I go to one called insight timer And I do a guy called David G, J-I. It's called Deep Thought. And it's a very different type of meditation. It's 18 minutes. I do it at night. You're meant to do it for 59 nights in a row. And it changes your neural pathways. It was tested at Massachusetts General Hospital. I did up to day 39. And then I didn't do it for two weeks. And I'm back on it now. And I listen to the same bloody thing every night. But I don't remember half of it. So it's like a new thing every night. Definitely gets me to sleep. It makes me feel better. And it makes me live in the moment more. Well, thank you very much for all your
1: fearless, as your book says, fearless advice. You're a great guru to have around for us midlife women. It's very, very helpful. Thank you for that. And we wish you luck with whatever the next chapter of Trini is. How are you going to celebrate your 60th? Tell me that.
2: I know. I was thinking about that because I wanted to do something sort of mad. I did something great for my 40th because I got Lila christened and I had... um, celebrated my birthday at the same time so it was this fantastic celebration and i spent a lot of money on it to make this and invited all the people i wanted in my life to be there it was just very memorable i did nothing for my 50th hardly and so i do feel i want to but it might be the end of the year because it might be for what i want to do i might have to save or i'm going to think of something else but i will celebrate i think that we should celebrate thank you very much trini thank you so much for having me on
0: this week's How to Win a Midlife, we have asked an expert to join us as the subject is a particularly complex, fraught and can be a confusing one. What to do as a parent when your child says they're trans. Stella O'Malley is a therapist and founder of Genspect, an international alliance of professionals, trans people, detransitioners, parent groups and others who seek high quality care for gender related issues. Along with fellow therapists Sasha Ayad and Lisa Marciano, They have written a new book described as a wise and empathic resource for parents struggling with intensely difficult parenting terrain, gender dysphoria. Stella joins us now to share her knowledge and professional experience, as well as tips from the book, When Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Stella. Thank you very much for having me. Right. I think we'd like to start by looking at what children
1: are going through as they hit their teenage years. So the biological understanding of the mental and physical and actually neurological upheaval during that time, which is a huge, huge amount of change, isn't it? Just put it in context, Stella.
3: Tell us what's happening to all teenagers. I think we underestimate just how powerful adolescence is. And we, we, you know, we write a lot about, you know, the menopause and just how much it can, it can actually derail an awful lot of people. I truly believe the same is happening in the teenage years. You know, people mightn't have, you know, novels and memoirs to write about to talk about it. Well, some have some amazing teenagers have, but I think the influx of hormones at the same time as massive kind of cognitive kind of development, our brains stay the same size, but they, they develop. So we're adding layers of development and complexity all the way through adolescence. We have to hit a lot of developmental milestones throughout adolescence. So this, it's a, an extraordinary period that is unmatched in any other time of our life for change and demands and expectations and hopes and emotions. So no wonder we're all a little bit mad when we're teenagers.
0: And, um, it's interesting to kind of try and understand how identity fits into that because we've had a number of posts on our private Facebook group from parents who don't even know where to begin when their child starts showing signs of exploring a different gender or expressing a wish to transition. And I'm just going to read out one post actually, Stella, because I think it raises a lot of the questions and concerns that are likely to go through a parent's mind. My daughter is nearly 13 and I think she may be gay or trans. In the last 18 months, she's vehemently rejected anything girly and started wearing boys' clothes, had her hair cut short, has a huge interest in LGBT plus issues. We've always been open within the family about different sexualities and assured all our children that whatever they are is fine, but when I've tried to start a conversation, she just clams up. The other day I saw that she had written crosses on her developing chest like she was trying to cross them out, which fits in with the trans idea. I guess my question is, do I try to talk to her more and ask her outright, or do I wait until she comes to me? I don't know what to do for the best. So really, what should a parent do who finds themselves in this situation and what might they and their child potentially need support with during the sort of upcoming years of this child's development? In
3: a way, there's two elements to this. On one level, when a kid is 12 or 13, most importantly, we hasten slowly. We go cautiously. We never shame them and we let them kind of explore whatever they want to explore with the supportive air around you because you're their parent. And, you know, it's very important that you do that. When it's turning into body hatred, that's something to kind of flag in your mind and think that might need a little more attention. And when it might be a burgeoning sexuality that is being repressed, which I think there's a little sign of that when she clams up. I've I've noticed a lot of teenagers who clam up around sex or identity, it's often sexual repression that's happening. So it, they've kind of almost cloaked their sexual development with a gender identity. It's, it's like, because I'll talk about, because gender can be very political, it can be very cerebral, it's very interesting. So you can talk about that all day, but they won't talk about whether they might be lesbian or any sort of sexual feeling around them. That to me is a sign of their their cloaking their sexual development with the with the gender identity. I know this is complex, but uh, it's my own theory. We discuss it a bit in the book about sexual development. It's very very hard for all the flag waving for all the pride marches. It's still very hard for lesbian girls to come out as lesbian. There's something about it that seems to really really turn them into severe body hatred and and, and self hatred. But there's just one last thing about that question that that kind of you know struck me it's in the first chapter of our book which is basically being gay is not being the same as being trans being gay is uh you know it's a sexual attraction to somebody else but it's not the same development as being trans being trans is an actual uh, a mental health condition that might lead somebody to transition so some people who have extreme gender dysphoria I- i.e., they really are very discontent in the gender they are. They seek medical transition. They end up medically transitioning and they're trans. They end up you know, transitioning as a trans person. While to conflate it as being gay or being trans as if it's a crossroads isn't quite the same. It's not the same arc of development. Now, some people will say they've transitioned and they might not have had gender dysphoria. Very, very, very few, because medical transition carries a heavy burden You know, leads to a lot of medical complications and infertility and impaired sexual functioning. So it's not something to be done lightly. It's it's a it's a road that needs careful consideration. While if you're a lesbian and you're twelve or thirteen, there's not a lot to do. But as a parent, how do we have these more
1: challenging conversations that we might not be educated enough? You know, any conversation you have with your teen, they don't really want to talk to you about anything. Should this mum have a conversation
3: or should she wait? What's the feeling as a mum or a caregiver in this
1: situation?
3: It's really hard. In a way, you take the moment if you get it, because once in a while, the kid will look up and will actually want your input and you take it. So you have it. to be around, don't you, I guess. You have to be around for that and you have to be ready, even if you're exhausted or on your way out. And you think, not now. But it's usually late at night, isn't it? <laughs> exactly when it shouldn't be is when they might suddenly open up. But yeah, that would be the time. Have your point ready and prepared, if you follow me, to to land it on, especially if you're very concerned about them, because it's very important you get it right. You might only get three chances between now and Christmas. And so kind of have what you want to say a little bit ready, because if you keep on saying it when they don't want to hear it, you're going to cause conflict and you're going to drive them away and they'll close down. You can't get into that. And if you don't say anything because you're not ready when they finally are re- ready to open up, you've missed your chance. And, you, you know, you probably care more about your child than anybody else. So I think if they're in pain, it's worth giving it a lot of thought for that particular kid. I think I'd talk a little bit about giving yourself time, not putting pressure on yourself, being careful around body hatred. Maybe I would probably give a little bit of self-disclosure about my own life of body hatred when I was a kid. Not for them to answer, not for them to say, that's like me, but just for them to know this happens and it's it's not necessarily going to stay forever.
0: And just relating to that question or that post again, what can that parent expect over the next few years with their child if they are presenting in this way and, and living in this way at the moment at 12, 13?
3: For, for a child like that, very often, you know, we, and we go into it a lot in the book, very often there will be a lot of online content influencing them. So another thing that parents can do, which won't be so popular, but which will be well worth it. And we all know it, which is be very careful around their online content. You know, use it like at 12 and 13, you really can actually, you know, have quite a lot of control, which you won't be able to have in a few years. And also be, be careful around any, any child that is seeking medical transition should, you know, the, the wider context should be, should also be assessed insofar as there's a extraordinarily high level of co-occurring challenges such as undiagnosed autism or undiagnosed ADHD or things like that. So be aware of the wider picture. If at all possible, be aware of the online content. And that's nothing to do with actual, the deeper conversations with the daughter. It's to do with just looking at their wider life. Are they lonely? Do they need a bit of a hand? Do they need to get out more? So many teenagers, I really think COVID left a very heavy mark and they learned to communicate online. They learned to be friends online and they're a little lonely. I think that would be very important for, for a child like this. Again, the sex thing, it's very hard. Very, very hard to talk about sex and their sexual development. So I would kind of more find that within maybe the right book or the right film or the right YouTube. There's me going straight to the screens. But yeah, to send them clips. You know, just the odd thing that you think is really, really good. Something short and powerful. Don't become the kind of verbal wallpaper, though. Don't Don't constantly badger them with stuff. I did
1: learn when I was writing my parenting teens book that actually they do want to talk to you about Sex. It's you think they don't want to talk to their parents, but actually, you're almost their first port of call, aren't you, as a parent when it comes to sexuality and sex?
3: They do. They certainly want to figure out what they're thinking about sex. There is a a definite a, a definite cohort within children who are identifying as trans, who are very definitely they seem to be. I shouldn't say very definitely. In my experience as psychotherapists they seem to be very repressed around sex, scared of it, distressed very worried about it. So rather than going straight in to talk about sex, I would talk probably about how they seem to be really fearful of it. You know what I mean? So I talk around the subject as opposed to going straight in. So the language around gender
0: identity is very complex, isn't it? And it's confusing for many parents of our generation and older. You have a really useful glossary at the back of the book. But in your sort of clinical experience, how important is it to get the wording right.
3: Wow. (laughs) It's terrifying. That's what it is. It's terrifying. And that's one thing we say in the book. We say, you know, if possible, if your child, you know, comes out as trans, maybe don't say very much and listen a lot because the language you use is almost bound to be wrong because it's so complex. This language is, Really, it reminds me, I'm, I'm from Ireland, it reminds me of Northern Ireland, and everybody was afraid to speak about it because you'd use the wrong word and everybody would lose it. <laughs> and then you'd suddenly inadvertently positioned yourself because of the language you used. And it, it feels very similar with this, that you can inadvertently say something wrong when you don't mean to at all. That's why we put in the glossary, and that's why we say, if at all possible, during those early weeks, say little. Keep on saying, I don't know much about this. Please tell me more. Please tell me more. I'm going to educate myself. We're in an imbalance right now because usually I as the adult would know more, but you seem to know more right now. I'm going to learn and I will be able to give you guidance, but right now you seem to know more. So I'm not going to say very much, but when I do know more, I will say so. So that's given you space to kind of catch up because it does feel like it's an entire language. You're catching up on. There's a lot of concepts and a lot of acronyms and a lot of jargon to kind of wade your way through. But once you do, I often say it's about forty or fifty words and concept, and that's it. So it's you know it's hard, but it's doable. And and you know you want your child more than anything in the whole world to be
1: at ease and happy and navigate this, this adolescent development, which is a huge stage of their life. You want it to be well, but you have your own feelings around this as a parent. And I know that because I've talked to many parents of trans children. The siblings have feelings as well. What, what, How do we show our feelings and take care of ourselves? What what do you advise parents to do who might feel sad, who might feel happy or, or overwhelmed or worried they've said something wrong or guilty? How do we validate our feelings and look after ourselves as parents so we're
3: better parents to our trans children? Yeah, I think it's really, really important that parents look after themselves because it can feel incredibly overwhelming. It's where I've seen parents most at sea because they feel... The, the child knows more than me. The child has learned their information from the online content. And that's one thing that I would advise just to just, by the way, ask your child to send you the links that she's been reading. Ask her to him, if it's a boy, to send them the content that they've been reading, because actually you'll really understand where they got their information because they can sound like they've got it all from one place and it might be somewhere completely different. So it's a really, really informative thing to do. But yeah, self-care is crucial for this because this might be one of the most important challenges of your life. And when you feel that you don't know anything about it, it's very tempting to throw your power over to the child or over to the experts, anybody but you, because you feel at sea. And honestly, our job as parents is to get to know whatever the problem is and to give guidance, that's that's the role we have. Keep the connection, isn't it? You've got to. You might not want to, and I've met parents who say, "I remember one. He was a dad. He was like, I 'I don't want to learn all this. It's way out of my. I'm just going to bring it over to the professionals.'" And I'm like, "You're leaving yourself very disempowered by doing that. You know, you're leaving yourself really at mercy of people you don't know who are going home at five o'clock. You need to inform yourself. And thankfully, one thing there is is there's tons." of resources out there. But you do need to start slowly figuring out the reliable ones rather than the influencers and the light kind of, you know, that can be really, they can act as if it's very simple and easy when it's, it's really quite complex and difficult.
0: Well, that's really helpful, Stella. And actually, as a first resource, we do have a copy of your book, When Kids Say They're Trans, to give away on our Facebook group. And there's more resources in there and that all-important glossary of the words as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Uh, We've reached Nostalgia Noodle and you haven't noticed anything different about me. I'm in a particularly strictly mode, Trish.
0: You haven't noticed well, you haven't turned into J-Lo like you said you were going to. No, but I am covered in fake tan. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't even noticed. Well, I think your lighting is not showing the... Fa- oh, no, I can see on your arms. Yes, you're holding that up to yeah. the camera. I'm clinging on to summer. I was inspired by Strictly. Oh. Um,
1: and I thought we could revisit it a bit for our nostalgia noodle because do you know what I love?
0: Yes, we've already talked about about Strictly. What I loved the most... Well, everything. Everything. No, I liked Angela Rippon's legs. Did you see
1: Angela Rippon's legs? She looked amazing. 78. Extraordinary. Just so kind of fit and vibrant and energetic. Uh We just haven't seen, I mean, for us as our generation, when we were younger, those women were just never there. They weren't role models. We didn't see them. No, no, not women in their 70s for sure. No, not wearing glitter and, Oh, practically doing the splits. She's amazing. You know, Goldie Horne is 77. If you look at her on her
0: Instagram, as well, she looks amazing. Two great role models, nostalgic role models for us. Well, I have to say as well, of course, because we do know that Angela presented Come Dancing, the precursor from the sort of, yes, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But what I found a fascinating fact about Angela, well, two actually. First of all, she was the first presenter of Top Gear. No Jeremy Clarkson. (laughs) Angela Rippon was the first presenter of Top Gear. And, um, you know, because obviously she was the first female newsreader on the Nine O'Clock News back in 1975, and she was sort of covering for someone who was off sick. And her first story was that Margaret Thatcher had been made leader of the Conservative Party. And we salute you. I know. And do you know what Angela Margaret and I have in common? I was looking at some pictures. Slightly judgy. No? <laughs> Psychopaths. No. Um. Pussy bow blouse. Look what I'm wearing today. Oh, you love a pussy bow, you do. You lovely pictures of Angela from the seventies in a pussy bow, and of course uh, the old uh, Mrs. Thatcher as well. But you've got a bit of a. I'm calling that a Pat Butcher blouse on today. It's very jazzy and pink and black and Trish this is vintage
1: Paul Smith I'll have you know so which you should know because you did work in fashion for 27,000 years (laughs) Um, but it is a bit jazzy isn't it yes I've gone all jazzy it's a dress actually it's a dress actually I just oh, need oh, okay. massive plastic red earrings don't I to yes, go with it I'm trying exactly. to think what Pat Butcher said but I can't I don't want to say it
0: because I'll say it in the wrong accent and it'll be rude and I'll get cancelled so I'll avoid that we're at the end we've made it to the end of this week's episode of Postcards from Midlife we hope you all enjoyed it Thank God, some might be saying. Thank you for listening all the way through to the
1: end. Please subscribe to us. Please review us. Please send us uh, any thoughts you have about being included in the show. Hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. We've got a couple of emails I'm going to read out next week, actually. Oh, good. midlife women championing themselves, which I like to see. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. (laughs)